0: I think if you can combine a really good understanding and practical experience and knowledge and skill set of real estate and how to add value to it, as well as a credit discipline and credit underwriting, then this space is is really attractive because you're investing in assets that have room for improvement. So your entry loan to value, which is the metric we use typically in in real estate debt to assess sort of risk will decrease over time as money is spent on the building. The sponsor implements their business plan and then the the value of the asset is improved. So you end up getting paid a very nice premium for what is a a stabilized asset.
1: That was Sam Malore, head of Europe and Asia-Pacific real estate debt. And this is Streaming Income a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode number four of season three of Streaming Income. Throughout the season, we'll be bringing you in-depth conversations with experts on asset classes like EM Debt, high yield, real estate, and more. Remember, if you'd like to receive our latest insights as soon as they become available, you can subscribe to the show by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. On today's show, I spoke with Sam Malore, head of Europe and Asia-Pacific real estate debt here at Barings. Based in London, Sam is part of Barings Real Estate, which has extensive capabilities across both equity and debt strategies and manages roughly $45 billion in assets as of June 30th, 2020. In Europe, Barings Real Estate's 56 dedicated real estate investment professionals are based across nine regional offices and are responsible for managing approximately 6.5 billion euros in real estate assets. In this conversation, we focused on real estate debt markets with particular attention to the development of the asset class in Europe. Specifically, we talked about the factors contributing to the growth of real estate debt as an institutional asset class, how real estate debt stacks up versus other fixed income asset classes, both public and private, what impact the pandemic is having on the attractiveness of the current vintage of real estate debt transactions and other factors that investors need to consider when allocating to the asset class from the sourcing of transactions to the upgrading of properties and quite a bit more. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Sam Mallor. All right, Sam Mallor, welcome to Streaming Income. Thanks, Greg. Great to be here. Great to have you here, uh, and this is, of course, your first time on this podcast, so if you don't mind, uh, I'd love to ask you just if you uh, could tell our listeners a little bit about your role at Bearings, and maybe a little bit about what you've uh, been up to before joining the firm uh, in 2018.
0: Sure, great. So um, I run the real estate debt business for Bearings in Europe and Asia Pacific. Uh, we're part of the, uh, the global real estate debt business. Which is a sort of $30 billion plus AUM business. Um, and it's something that Bearings has been doing for, for a long
1: time. And how about before joining the firm, what were you doing? Before that, uh, well, I've
0: I've got a few gray hairs now, so I I can say (laughs) um, I've been around for a while. Um, I've been in real estate finance for about 25 years, Um, uh, originally in my home country of of New Zealand, so that that explains the accent and and (laughs) stuff, having to guess whether I'm Australian or New Zealand. And then I I came to London about 20 years ago, and I I started working at lending teams um, at banks um, for a number of years and then the, um, the time before I joined Bearings, which is a little over two years ago, I had seven years at a London-based hedge fund where I set up and ran the, the real estate investment part of the business. Um, so always been in real estate and the last 20 plus years has been here in London in the European markets.
1: Well, we've done probably something like 45 episodes now, I think. I could be wrong about this, but I think you're the first Kiwi on the show. So congratulations on that uh, achievement.
0: You can put subtitles on for the first time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So it sounds like we've got uh, the right person to talk to about real estate debt. So let's let's get in and and, and talk about this asset class. And you know, before we talk about the market opportunity out there today and what you're seeing, let, let's kind of just do a little bit of a background, if you don't mind, because you know I'm not sure everybody is completely um, as knowledgeable as you are when it comes to this asset class, especially since uh, you know it's it's developing you know quite rapidly uh, in Europe in, in recent years. So, if you wouldn't mind, tell us a little bit about. Um, you know, how big this asset class is, you know, how the how the European market may differ from the U.S. and, and basically how it's been developing as an institutional asset class in recent years.
0: Yeah, sure, Greg. And, and some very good points to bring out there because it is quite different from the U.S. So the first thing I'd say is, look, it, it's a big market. So um, estimates are that there's about 1.3 trillion euros uh, of outstanding commercial real estate debt um, across the the European markets. So it's you know it's a big opportunity. Number one, uh, two. Historically, uh, in Europe, banks were were the provider of debt capital um, to the sector. The private real estate debt industry or product really didn't exist before the the global financial crisis. Uh, where we sit today, sort of ten years on from that. Is that um, non-bank lending, be it um, debt funds, insurance companies, or, or capital markets, is, is probably now around thirty percent of the total outstanding debt, and on new originations is is even higher. So I think the trend is is pretty clear that um, you know an in, in industry that didn't exist ten years ago is, is now a permanent part of the the landscape. There are quite a few differences, Greg, with the uh, European market versus uh, the US market, and I think most of them stem from the fact, uh, as I said, that it was a bank-dominated market until about 10 years ago. So um, one of the key ones is that uh, brokers intermediaries are not as prevalent over here, so direct origination is more a feature of the landscape. That is slowly changing as some of the big US firms have, have got established and and are starting to do quite well over here on the debt brokerage side. But I think the uh, the model of you know needing contacts in the market and being able to source directly is even more prevalent here than in the US.
1: You know, as I as I hear you describe this, uh, it's the the thing that jumps out to me is that um, there's so many parallels between the development of this asset class and what we've seen over the last decade with um, private credit in terms of, uh, you know, the banks pulling back for regulatory reasons, uh, institutional capital stepping in, and then the asset class becoming, uh, I guess, much more an accepted standard uh, allocation for institutional investors. Um, Do you think that's a fair comparison, real estate debt, to, you know, maybe where direct lending was five or 10 years ago?
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good comparison to make. And we do see real estate debt sort of having evolved over the last 10 years here in Europe. So I'd say that the version 1.0, if you like, immediately after the crisis was where um, just the scarcity of capital all around, equity and debt, you could provide um, debt financing and get equity-like returns. That normalised relatively quickly. And then the the next version uh, was very much sort of uh, whole loans, Uh, And now I think we have a continuum of products. So from uh, investment-grade equivalent, you know, low leverage, lower returning, through to some um, more higher yielding, but still, you know, very safe, downside-protected product in the middle, and then um, uh, some more opportunistic strategies. So I think now it's established as – you know, on the menu for investors as an asset class, whereas, you know, even five years ago, I think uh, you were needing to really um, explain what real estate debt was to investors. I think generally now in the investor community, people have it there and it, it's it's one of the private debt um, menu items for them. Uh, I think there's more familiarity from the corporate world, but we are seeing maybe the, the investors who have now been doing private corporate debt for you know, a number of years looking at real estate debt as the next natural extension of, of their portfolios and, and the knowledge they've built up so far.
1: So um, on this podcast, our listeners will know we talk about a variety of fixed income asset classes and other asset classes, but we talk a lot about high yield bonds and loans, investment grade, corporate credit, EM debt, private credit. Um, so as you think about real estate debt and some of its uh, attributes, where does it fit in that spectrum of fixed income asset classes, you know, both public and private? Yeah, great
0: question. So I think probably to answer that uh, coherently, the first thing I'd, I'd run through for you is just you know what are the features of, of real estate debt? What does it look like? So um, you know, for bearings in Europe, uh, we're focused on, on senior debt. Um, so secured by a first-ranking mortgage, we have physical real estate as the collateral. So we're secured over, you know, a, a logistics warehouse or a, a multi-family apartment, and that's hard collateral that that we rank first on. We have a significant equity cushion, anywhere from sort of thirty to fifty percent um, subordination below us. Uh, The loans can be fixed or floating rates, so a little bit like in the corporate world, we can have private placements through to the, the sort of mid-market loans and the duration you know matches so for the the fixed um product it's anywhere from five to 15 years for the the floating rate product three to five years are the, the general market conventions um and the return is is very much uh, driven or exclusively driven really from income distribution so it's a uh, origination fees uh, and coupons that's what generates the return rather than capital appreciation uh, they are illiquid you know they're, they're infrequently if at all traded um, that does give you sort of low volatility from a mark to market perspective and you know you should get a, a premium for that illiquidity which we do see so um, those are the features of, of real estate debt, I think, and within that then, to answer your question, where does it fit, um, you know, it, it really depends on the, the risk return um, appetite of the investor because there are different products uh, they have different characteristics. So, you know, broadly speaking, um, I'd split the world into sort of three real estate debt products. Uh, you have your core Mortgages, so um, lower leverage, very much investment grade equivalent credit quality, uh, very stabilised buildings with very stable cash flows, maybe analogous to the, the private placement business, um, and there we see um, uh, you know strong demand, especially from insurance companies, and for the longer dated paper where it can help match their their liabilities. Um, And then in the middle space, we'd see sort of core plus and value add uh, opportunities where uh, there are existing buildings but um, there is an asset management plan to improve those buildings and and increase the value. So that's probably, you know, lined up very similarly to the the private finance business we run at Bearings. Um, Probably the end in terms of high yield, nearer, the, the top of the high yield ratings range and, and, and bottom of the investment grade range at the beginning. You mentioned earlier some of the features of the loans that we like or, or asked about that. We really like to focus on loans where we can see the underlying collateral improvement value over the course of the loan. And, and that's a feature of that that middle product um, there where you know we get a positive credit migration during the life of the loan. And then the last um, product, the third one, so you know number one being the core IG equivalent, uh, the middle one being the core plus value add. and the last one's construction, which I, I don't really see as a, a fixed income proxy. Um, you know that is is taking a, a ground up construction project and, and financing that. So I guess a long answer, but the, it depends which product you choose, um, but somewhere, investment grade to the top end of, of high yield is, is probably where I'd benchmark it.
1: That's a really helpful context and helpful to to hear you describe it that way and, and get a sense of of you know the different risk return profiles of the different parts of the universe. Sam, one of the big focuses across fixed income today is what default rates will look like uh, through this cycle. So how are you thinking about defaults when it comes to real estate debt? <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's the first thing I'd say is um, compared to the U.S., probably the availability of data in Europe is, is not as good. But our research team have spent a lot of time on this. And as we see it, over a sort of 10-year period, the default rates are sort of in line with infrastructure and investment-grade bonds and you know, quite significantly lower than on high-yield bonds. So rather than put sort of percentage figures on it, um, that's the way I would think about it and, and help people to benchmark This product versus other ones they may be more familiar with.
1: You know, one other question I wanted to ask you before we get into what the market looks like today is a question around ESG. Um, It's a theme that is coming up, you know, almost in every conversation that we're having today. And in fact, we had an episode of Streaming Income a little while back where we spoke with a number of our uh, fixed income team members across investment grade, EM debt, and high yield, and got their views in terms of how they are implementing ESG today um, in their investment process. How that's kind of changed in recent years. Um, so I wanted to ask you that same question. You know, I'm sure there's a lot to think about when it comes to real estate debt, but how is how's ESG kind of playing a role in all of this? Yeah,
0: it's definitely becoming more and more front and centre of the conversation that we have around investments uh, and also, um, you know, when we're talking about real estate debt with investors. One thing i definitely point out is, you know, as opposed to, say, our equities business, uh, either publics or, for example, closer to home, the, the real estate equity business, we, we are one step removed as a lender. So our role... Is less as an owner operator and being able to directly implement changes, and more as an influencer um, to encourage, uh, you know, strong ESG practices. Um, and, and we do that, you know, and it's embedded in our our process. The, the good thing is, as well, with real estate is we've always done it. Um, you know, it just never used to be called ESG, but. For example, uh, location and things like walk scores, availability of public transport, uh, environmental considerations, water levels, flooding, being near coastal environments. Looking at an environmental report on every transaction we do. You know, has there been ground contamination? Could there be um, earthquake risk? Is there any materials in the building that would be hazardous, e.g., asbestos, things like that? That that is fundamental to you know the value of the underlying collateral and so we we've always been looking at that i think the the social and the governance side are, are coming through more and more too because and again something we've always looked at we, when we're underwriting loans you know we we talk about the 3 Bs the borrower the basis and the building so the governance is is definitely embedded in the borrower so How well run are they? What are their processes like? Um, as I said, that they're going to be the owner of the building. What are they doing about a ESD and and where are their policies at? So that all goes into the mix for us. And then, you know, the the characteristics I was running through before of of diligence items that we always look at that goes very much to the building and, and the quality of it. Um, because those things will directly influence. Value so look, it's it's massively important. It, it always has been massively important, uh, and now we're you know we're getting better and better at um, measuring it and quantifying it and tracking it.
1: Sam, with, which sectors, from your perspective, have been most impacted by COVID?
0: Yeah, great question. I think. Um, Unfortunately for retail, that was uh, on the ropes before COVID and this has probably been the king hit uh, for retail. So a sector that was struggling, um, all the trends that underpinned that struggle. So really the move um, from physical to online retailing, that's just been exacerbated by COVID. So retail remains very challenged. After retail, I'd say that the sector that's been most impacted immediately by um, by COVID is the hotel sector. I, I think medium to longer term, um, it's in a different category to retail in that it, it doesn't have that secular trend that is is um, is diminishing the, the value of retail. Uh, hotels, I think, will come back. Um, but, you know, obviously in many countries, it was mandatory for hotels to close. Uh, they do have a high level of, of cost that um, is in the business, regardless of whether they're open or not. So it's been challenging time for hotel operators. Um, I don't know if I could say there are green shoots yet, but certainly we are seeing occupancy increasing um, in certain hotel types. Then we have a sort of middle category of offices and student accommodation where Again, long-term, I think the drivers that were supportive of those sectors remain in place, certainly for for student um, and, and I believe, office. Um, I guess we see how this shakes out in terms of of working from home. But I think regardless of of that trend, you know, I think the key driver will be, as it always has been, which is, uh, you know, location uh, and the quality of the space. So I think if you can provide that space. We have seen leasing deals happen. People are continuing to take space, but it's in the best locations and, and in the best buildings. So that's certainly where we would focus in office. And then finally, the, the two sectors that I think are relatively unscathed by COVID, and in fact, one of them is the the flip side of the coin from retail, which is logistics. It's probably been further enhanced by COVID, um, and we've seen demand for logistics space, you know, continue to to ramp up and accelerate through COVID. So logistics is very strong and that's a a part of the market where we've been adding a lot of exposure over the last 12 months. And then multifamily residential. So I think the need for good quality um, and affordable residential housing is undiminished across Europe. Now, Around the edges, whether that means the design of these units will change a little bit post COVID, so you know, incorporating home office space, maybe making the units slightly bigger rather than trying to you know increase the density. Uh, those kind of aspects uh, are being discussed a lot at the moment. But in terms of the the demand for it, that remains very very strong in in the European markets that we cover.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for that uh, overview. Also, if listeners are interested in diving deeper into this, I would just flag that Sam's colleagues on the real estate research team have put out some pretty in-depth research pieces, including a piece called How the Pandemic Changes Real Estate that you can find on bearings.com under the viewpoint section, where uh, we go into a lot more detail on everything that Sam just mentioned. All right. Well, without further ado, why don't we talk about the opportunity that you're seeing out there today? So tell me What's looking attractive across the real estate debt space? And then maybe, you know, are there any trends that are kind of underpinning the opportunities that you're seeing out there today?
0: Yeah. I might start with the sort of long-term drivers um, because I think they do underpin the strategy and, and really the the prospects for the sector. I guess the number one or on the, the sort of supply side is, um, uh, you know, the back to the sources of capital. So, that driver of banks sort of having diminishing appetite for the space um, continues. Uh, we don't see that changing, if anything. Um, recent events like COVID have exacerbated that. If you look at what's happening around bank loss provisions across the piece, yeah, that puts pressure on capital. I think generally as you know, we enter into a period of, of economic stress post-COVID, um, they'll have – Increased capital requirements as loans um, start to suffer on, on credit quality. And that just dries up the amount of liquidity they have um, to allocate to different sectors. And I think generally, you know, from a high of 12% of the total um, assets of banks in Europe um, back before the financial crisis, real estate debt now represents about 6%. And that's pretty much target for the banks. I don't think they want to get a lot bigger than that um, in terms of exposure to real estate debt. So between the increased capital requirements um, under the BAL regulations, um, them being at their target allocations anyway, and the fact that you know uh, COVID has, has generally tightened up liquidity and, and capital at all the banks, we, we don't see that underlying um driver and opportunity for private uh, capital to come in to the sector changing. So that, that's the number one. And, and that is just a secular trend in Europe that will continue. So that that's underpinning everything I talk about. And then I think um, short term, there's a really um, exacerbated opportunity post-COVID in terms of those three products I talked about, you know, the core, the, the core plus value add and the construction where the available capital that the banks do have for real estate um, is very much crowding into that core space. Um, Now, we find that still attractive. Um, It's a a very safe product. You've got huge downside protections, typically sort of 45 to 50% of the asset value is funded by equity, so a lot has to go wrong before you would um, have any impairment on your loan. Uh, the, the cash flow is very stable, so your, your coupon is, is very well protected. You know, you have interest cover ratios usually sort of two and a half, three times plus on that. Um, and the spreads are wider than where they were post-COVID, anywhere from sort of 15 to 25 basis points. So I think, you know, we, we see that as an attractive entry point. Uh, but of all the real estate debt sort of, strategy type so you could look at that one's where there still is the most liquidity um moving into the core plus and value add um i would say their spreads have moved out post-covid probably 100 to 150 basis points and they've stuck there so the banks were less active in that space anyway before covid um, and have certainly became become i should say even more um inactive there and that you know i think if you We'll come on uh, maybe to you know, what you need to, to be successful in the, the sector. But I think if you can combine a really good understanding and practical experience and knowledge and skill set of, of real estate and how to add value to it as well as credit, credit discipline and credit underwriting, then this space is, is really attractive because you're investing in assets um, that have room for improvement. So your entry – uh, loan to value, which is the metric we use typically in, in real estate debt to assess uh, sort of risk, will decrease over time as money is spent on the building, the sponsor implements their business plan and, and then the value of the asset is improved. Um, so you end up you know, getting paid uh, a very nice premium for what is a, a stabilised asset um, within a, a relatively short period of, of holding
1: for the lender. So it sounds it sounds to me like COVID has, uh, you know, obviously given all, it has had a tremendous amount of impact on pretty much every asset class. But, but one of the impacts that it's had is is uh, driven, you know, wider spreads or wider pricing um, in your in your market. So in theory, I guess uh, what you're looking at today in terms of putting new capital to work uh, in this current vintage. Uh, could be an, an attractive price point, you know, through the cycle. Um, but I guess one of the questions I had for you is, you know, what that sourcing process looks like, and especially in Europe, because if I think about all of the different um, countries, um, you know, where you're sourcing opportunities, you're looking across various jurisdictions. Presumably, they have you know different uh, legal regimes, different tax regimes. Et cetera. I can imagine that could be quite complicated. And then throw a global pandemic on top of it, and uh, then I can imagine it's really complicated. So how does that actually work in terms of sourcing um, deals? And are, and are you guys actually able to do that today? Yeah, great question. Um, also, in something like
0: uh, real estate, there's a lot of cliches and, and catchphrases in real estate, but the sort of location, 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 and, and local knowledge one is is definitely important. Um, it is quite an idiosyncratic asset class. Each asset has its sort of own nuances and history and and things you have to consider. Um, and in Europe, as you say, that's doubled down by different languages, different legal systems, and, and different market practices. So, you know, we have a, a very extensive network of local professionals in the markets we are focused on, which is pretty much the, the core we would consider the core Western European markets where there's the most liquidity, the most sort of established um, transparency and and on the lending side, certainly we feel that there are uh, robust creditor rights so that, you know, our security is enforceable and our position protected. So that's, where we're focused, and we have teams in all the markets where we're looking to lend. And, and back to that point I mentioned earlier about sort of combining the, the credit and the real estate expertise—that's that, how we work. So um, we we use that in a number of ways. Sourcing is definitely one of them. So originating the opportunities, you know, as um, we mentioned earlier, Europe is coming from a market that was very uh, much direct origination and, and not through intermediaries. That is slowly changing, but I think still the, the big requirement is to have experienced people with, with good connections to source these loans, uh, and we, we have that with our network of offices across Europe. So uh, we lean on that for origination, uh, as well as um, you know predominantly London-based sponsors who, who have a pan-European um, operation and, and network. Uh, the other advantage to having these local teams is um, really on the underwriting side. So, you know, the amount of times where our local teams know the building have, have, um, or own assets nearby, we can just get a, a very, very strong uh, read and, and underwriting uh, package put together because we, we're active in the market real time, um, which is a huge leg up. The last advantage of it very much is, is you know, and, and we've been um, fortunate and we've, we've not had any defaults or needed to work out any loans in Europe and, and we've been lending since 2012. But if we did, um, then, you know, we could use our local teams to asset manage the property and and rehabilitate it if required to maximise value on our debt. So I think all in all, um, you know, the, with the the way uh, Europe is very segmented into the different countries with the different systems and languages and market sort of practices um, and the fact that real estate is extremely local knowledge product. Um, you, you really need to have that network of local professionals to, to operate in the market.
1: Got it, got it. Well, Sam, as we wrap up the discussion here, I wanted to just ask you um, what your prediction is for the Development of this asset class uh, as we look ahead uh, a few years out, and and maybe any parting words that you would have for um, investors who might be considering an allocation to real estate debt.
0: Yeah, I think as I look at where we're going in Europe on on real estate debt, I think you'll see a continuation of um, investors allocating more from their fixed income uh, allocations into the space. Uh, And there are now, you know, sufficient range of of products for them, I think, to fill different needs in their portfolio. So you can have an IG-like equivalent um, exposure through the core loans, uh, especially good for insurers uh, where it's longer dated fixed rate with call protection. Uh, You can get something that yields uh, in the sort of mid-single digits, very simple product, um, which is you know, unlevered and first mortgages or senior loans in that in that middle space we've been talking about, sort of core plus value add, um, and with that, I think it, it is just going to become a, a larger and larger part of the market, um, as well as you know people who are. are Taking money from their real estate allocation and looking to achieve um, those kind of returns, but with debt rather than equity. So, overall, I'd say it, it's going to become a bigger and bigger part of investors' portfolios uh, and it, it adds a diversifier for them. Um, you know, we've looked historically at the sort of um, correlation to bonds and equities and it, it's quite low. So, I think it's um, a nice diversifier as well as, you know, having a nice. Aspect of income, which in today's world is—if you think about the statistics that are thrown around—how much of the fixed income universe is yielding below two percent, and a huge amount even below zero. Um, to find um, a product that's backed by, you know, hard assets and a senior position, first-ranking security uh, that can deliver you anywhere from a, a in the core end, sort of two to three percent, and in the the middle space, is sort of four to five percent return is, is going to
1: become more and more attractive to people yeah yeah well thank you for that uh overview and and thanks for all the knowledge that you've shared um in this conversation today this is our first episode on real estate debt so i appreciate you helping to uh get us educated on the on the basics of the asset class that the development of the asset class in europe and also giving you some of your thoughts on some of the current market dynamics. So appreciate you joining, Sam. We will uh, have to get you back here on the show in 2021 to see how some of this is uh, continuing to develop. Thank you, Greg. All right. Speak soon. Thanks for listening to episode number four of season three of streaming income. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple podcasts or Spotify so that you are the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.